This is the um, Shiur on Wednesday, uh, between law and the Meraglim narrative, chapter 15 in Sefer Bamidbar, uh, Rabbi Nathaniel Helfgott. Okay, good, uh, good afternoon, beginning of the afternoon. Sarayim um, Tovim. Uh, my name is uh, Natty Helfgott, uh, for those who were not in my previous class. So, um, as I mentioned, it's uh, very emotional for me to be here. Uh, in Yeshivat Haaretzion, I went here 30 years ago, and to come back and be able to uh, teach here is very—it's uh, uh, very emotional for me uh, to be to join you. Uh, I was here before there were any Yemei Iyun B'Tanach, before there was Michlal at Herzog, and it's beautiful to see uh, the Hitpatchut, to see the development. Um, so I am—I uh, live in Tinek, and I'm a rabbi in Tinek. I'm also uh, the chair of the Bible department. In, of uh, Yeshivat Chovei Torah Rabbinical School, and I teach at SAR High School as well. Uh, so it's uh, wonderful to be here with you today. And Drisha, I also, I also teach at Drisha once a week. And um, I um, uh, just want a few caveats at the beginning. Uh, please feel free to, to ask any questions. Uh, if something is unclear uh, and something is... Uh, not clear. I'll, I assume a certain level of, uh, of facility with the Tanakh, but uh, if something is unclear, please ask. Uh, you don't, there's no sheets to give out. You just need a Tanakh uh, to look at. And uh, today, would like to look at. I'd like to look at chapter 15, uh, Perak Tetvav of Sefer Bamidbar, and to uh, look at this very unique chapter, which is all full of uh, mitzvot and its relationship to narrative. One of the unique things about the Torah, in contrast to many other ancient Near Eastern texts, is the meshing together of law and narrative. This is something that you don't find, for example, in the, uh, the Code of Hammurabi, etc. It's just law. You don't have a meshing together of narrative that is often integrated into the law, and the law is often integrated into the narrative, and they play off of each other. Now, this is something that's very, very unique to, uh, to the Torah and to Tanakh. And sometimes it expresses itself in very interesting ways. I'll give you a few examples um, before we get into our, uh, the one I want to focus on uh, today. Um, at the beginning of Parshat Ki Teitze, the beginning of, of the, of the beginning of that parasha, we of course talk about going out to war, Ki Teitze Milchama, etc. And then it talks about the, uh, the laws of what should we call it? Of giving the of giving an inheritance to your children. It talks about if somebody has a, a beloved wife and someone has a, a wife that's not so beloved. One is beloved and one is hated. Clearly, that law and the language that's used there is played off of the story of Leah and Rachel. Meaning, there's a lot of echoes. So, in the formulation of the legal material. It uses the degem, it uses the model of a narrative previously in the Bible as the stepping stone to formulate a law. It uses the same terminology. Snuah, Leah says, I was hated. It uses similar, to- it talks about the Bechorah, talks about who becomes the Bechor and who doesn't get chore. So there's a tremendous amount of playoff where the law plays off the narrative. There's another example Here's another example where the narrative plays off the law. I'll give you a, a famous example that I heard many years ago from uh, Raviol bin Nun. And uh, of course, here we have to quote Raviol bin Nun here in, in Gush. And of course, he's, he's a very dear friend and my teacher. 
And uh, Rav Yoel pointed out a very interesting thing. Just, just if you look at the beginning of of, of Sefer Yeshayahu Perak Bet, Sefer Yeshayahu Perak Bet, in the book of Isaiah, chapter two. So we have the famous uh, vision of the of the future, Isaiah chapter two. Hadavar Asher Chaza Yeshayahu Ben Amotzal Yudav Yerushalayim, chapter two, verse one. So you have this wonderful vision of the whole world coming to, to Jerusalem, coming to the mountain, the temple, the temple mount, and they're looking for teaching. So we have the Lashon, we have the phrase Hora'ah, and we have the phrase Kimitzion Teitzei Torah, Udvar Dunayim Yushalayim, Veshafat Bein Goyim, and the, the Jewish people there, or God, will be able to adjudicate between the various nations. It's like the International Court of Justice. <laughs> Yushalayim, instead of being hauled up in front of the International, Yushalayim will be the one doing the judging. And we will bring peace to the world. Beautiful, beautiful text. So here we talk about this beautiful vision of from Jerusalem will come teaching, will come Torah, will come all this wonderful thing, and, and there will come adjudication, justice. Then, of course, the text goes on and talks about the fact that the reality today is that in Israel itself, we're very far from that reality. Meaning, this is a vision of what could be, but right here and now, Am Yisrael are in a very bad place. So, for example, so he says, Beit Yaakov l'chuven el chabor Hashem, ki natashtam cha Beit Yaakov, ki malu mikedem v'onanim ka plishtim. You are full of things, you're full of um, uh, uh, of onanim, you're full of soothsayers, and you're full of all these things, and you follow the ways of the nochrim. Vatimalei art so kesev zahav, and you fill your land with gold and silver. Vatimalei art so susim, the inketzelamar kavotav, etc., etc. So Rav Yoel pointed out very simply that this passage of Yeshayahu is built upon the the legal material. So here's this is an example of narrative based on law. The legal material in Sefer Dvarim. If you turn to the book of Dvarim, you turn to the book of Deuteronomy. You turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter, <coughs> right, chapter 17. So there's a series of mitzvot. So the Torah talks about judgment. Chapter 17, uh, uh, verse 8. When you have a problem of mishpat, what are you going to do? You're going to go up to the mount, to the place which God has chosen. And you will follow everything that they show you, they teach you. So you have the three verbs there. You have Torah and the noun. The Torah, you have Yorucha, you have Mishpat. So there it's in miniature. There it's parochial. Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, when they have a problem, will go up to the mountain, they'll go up to the Beit HaMikdash, they'll go up to the Sanhedrin, they'll go up to the... And they will get judgment, and they will get Torah, they will get guidance, Yorucha. In the, 
Yeshayahu takes that story, and so to speak, that not story, that law, and expands it as a narrative of this is what is for Am Yisrael, but in the future, in the eschatological vision of the future, the Torah and the Hora'ah and the Mishpat will be for the whole world. And then it continues. What's the next series of laws? So if you, it's about having a king. But what do you have to be careful about when you put a king? You have to be careful about a couple of things. Don't put an ishnochri, don't put a foreigner above you because he'll influence your ways. And he shouldn't have too much susim and too much kesef and too much, which is exactly what chapter 2 of Yeshayahu, after it talks about the eschatological vision, it says, but the reality of the people are that they have houses full of yaldei nochrim, they follow the ways of the nochrim, and it's full of susim and it's full of kesef and it's full of zahav. And what happens? They become haughty, which is exactly what he talks about here. So that's a classic example where a narrative, a prophecy, is based upon a legal, seemingly legal, distinct halachic material about judgment, about melech, etc. What I'd like to show today is that the laws that are integrated into chapter 15 are intimately tied to the narrative. Because let's take a look. What's, what's been going on in Sefer Bamidbar? In Sefer Bamidbar, up until this point, we, of course... Uh, we had reached the pinnacle. The Jewish people were ready to enter the land of Israel in chapter 10. They invited Chovav to come with them, to help them. You will be our guide. And unfortunately, um, as I've written about, and also, you know, like we say in English, chapter 11. Chapter 11, you go into bankruptcy. That's exactly what happens. Chapter 11 of the book of Bamidbar is when everything falls apart. You have the mitonanim, you have the complainers, and then Moshe Rabbeinu needs help to re- lead the people. He's ready to get out of the business. Hanochi Hariti, did I make these people? I don't want to do this anymore. God has to bring him, uh, etc. God has to bring him other people to help him. Then we have the attack of Miriam and Aaron on the leadership of Moses, which is another, you know, dart being thrown at Moses. Then we have the story of the Miraglim which of course is the story of the unfolding, the undoing of everything, of the decision, Nitna Rosh V'nashuva Mitzrayma. The first time the people say that. Not just to complain, but they actually say, let's get rid, let's go back. Let's turn the clock back on everything that we've done until this point. So we've reached a critical point, and of course, in chapter 14, God is ready to destroy the people. Until when this horrible, horrible congregation, this horrible community, God is ready to destroy them. And it's only through the intercession of Moses, Moshe prays on their behalf, using the 13 principles of mercy. It's only through his intercession that the people are spared from total destruction, just like at Chet Egel, just like the sin of the golden calf. But there's a terrible statement, and that's that the mission does not go on. With you guys, you guys are going to die in the desert. Your corpses will die. Your children who you thought would be would die, they are going to end up in the land of Israel. But you will not die. You will wander in this desert. So we've reached a really 
horrible point. And of course we have the story of the Ma'apilim, that last story in chapter 15. In, in today, you know, in, in modern Zionist history, the Ma'apilim, of course, are, are a great thing. The ones who were willing to go against the British. And, you know, there's Rehov HaMa'apilim in, in Jerusalem. And we all have, were brought up on the ethos of that. But in the Bible, the Ma'apilim is a bad thing. The Ma'apilim are those who go against the will of God, not the will of the British. And the Ma'apilim are the Jews who say, okay, we're ready to go. And Moses says, don't go. Ki ein Hashem b'kir b'chem. God is not amongst you. It's no, eh? And of course, from, a, from, a, uh, from a, a structural point of view, what you have here also is, is an important statement. Um, where did I put my markers? Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. It's a little bit away from the mic. But what you have in the Miraglim story, in the story of the spies, is God had told the people to go in and they said no. So God said yes and they said no. The Ma'apilim story, the story of the Ma'apilim is the exact reverse. God said no, lowly kanes, and they said Cain, and they said yes. So fundamentally, it's an important point to make. The Bible is not militant, it's not hook, and it's not dove, it's not left wing, it's not right wing, it's, you have to listen to God, right? It's not, okay, we're gonna go fight. When God says to fight, you should fight. When God says don't fight, don't fight. That's fundamentally the message here. It's, are you fundamentally listening to God's voice? So you're not listening to God's voice. So this is where we, this is where chapter 14 ends. So when we get to the end of chapter 14, we are at a place of destruction. They're killed at Chormah, the Bible tells us. And there's a tremendous amount of depression in the camp. There's a tremendous amount of, of terrible situation going on. Chapter 15 records for us a series of mitzvot. A series of mitzvot that many of them could have appeared in, Parsh, in Sefer Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus. But for, we'll see, for some reason the Bible chooses to put them here. What are the mitzvot that appear in chapter uh, 15? So I'll make a little list. So the first ones, the mitzvah of menachot and nisachim, that whenever you bring a korban, you must bring together with it not a korban mincha as a separate korban, but together with, let's say you bring an ola, you bring a this, you bring a shlom, you must, as it says, you must bring a, mina, a mincha, a meal offering together like a side dish. You have to bring minachot and libations, nesech, wine libations. It then goes into the laws of challah. When you bake bread, you have to set aside a, some of the, of the dough. It then talks about the laws of the chitishgu, when we have to understand exactly what it's talking about, when you make a mistake and you do a uh, you do an avera, you do a mistake. What kind of korban do you bring? Which certainly should appear is already has has appeared in the book of Vayikra. Then we talk about when you do something biyad rama. And this is not a good thing. When you do an Aveira on purpose, it then talks about the Mikoshe Sheitzim. We have the story 
of the mikoshei sheitzim, the one who gathers wood, and it concludes with tzitzit. These are the six uh, areas that appear in chapter 15 of the book of Bamidbar, which interrupts narrative. We have the narrative of the Miraglim, followed by the narrative of Korach, which would fit like a glove. Both of them are about the unfolding, the unraveling, the collapse of the support for Moses, the un- undermining of the leadership of Moses, the beginning of the end, which is going to culminate in chapter 20 with Moses being told with the sin of hitting the rock, which will eventually lead Moses. Not- so it's a, it's a perfect, but all of a sudden the Bible sticks in here, of all places, these mitzvot. So why exactly does it stick in uh, these mitzvot? That's the main uh, issue. And these mitzvot, literarily, the Bible goes out of its way to connect them. Meaning, before we get into why they're here, it's very clear that from a literary point of view, the Bible goes out of its way to, you know, like we say, to do a chadamachta, to put them together in terms of language. To put them together. So, for example, if you look at the language, each one of them seems to you know, so to speak, be connected. So, for example, look at chapter 15, verse 1. So you have the phrase, The land that you will, you know, dwell in, that I am giving to you. The next text, the next mitzvah, which is the mitzvah of Chala, begins with a similar type of language, in verse 16, 17, When you come into the land which I am giving you, then you have to give, etc. And again, it's interesting, there's a repetition here of Lidorotechem. Forever and ever and ever. This is a mitzvah that's not just in the desert. This is a mitzvah just like the other mitzvot, Lidorotechem. For example, look at uh, Mincha and, and uh, Nisachim, verse 14. This is a mitzvah Lidorot. Forever and ever. Then Chala is Lidorotechem. Then we have the mitzvah of if you make a mistake. What kind of korban do you have to bring? And here too, the Torah uh, says, in terms of Lidorotechem, the Torah says, let me just find it here, one second. Yeah, in verse 23, Forever and ever and ever. And this, of course, uh, continues uh, in in the next section, Biyad Ramah, and the Torah comes, of course, to the narrative of the Mekoshe Sheitzim, and we have to find out what we're supposed to do. And the Torah tells us uh, about Am Yisrael, the mitzvot, etc. Okay, so there's certainly an attempt to connect it. And of course, Tzitzit ends with, again, a uh, similar language in terms of, um, where is that? Yeah, Lidorotam. Agavebedem Lidorotam, the idea of connecting. But why are these mitzvot here? and no other mitzvot. So let's start at the beginning. Rashi, Rashi already has a, a small comment, which is the beginning of the answer, but I'd like to develop it further. Rashi says on the Pasuk, on Pasuk Aleph, um, 
chapter 15, Rashi, excuse me, Rashi says, Kitavo, Pasuk Bet, Kitavo, Biser Lahem, Shi Kansula Aretz. Rashi says that God was letting them know that after all of the trouble and the travail, they would still enter the land. Meaning, the mitzvot are given here. And they start with the phrase, Daber el b'nei Yisrael v'amarta lehem ki tavo el ha'aretz, ki tavo el eretz moshvotechem ashinotein lechem, is a kind of nichama. It's a kind of consolation. For the last three chapters, everything's been going to hell. Everything's been going to pot. The Jews now have just been informed that they're not entering the land. You're, you will die in the land. They tried to forcibly enter the land and God shot them down. Maybe there was a terrible depression, a terrible malaise that came upon the people and the people had given up. Who's to say that in 38 years the children will really enter the land? Who's to know? Maybe we'll mess up again in the course of the desert. Who's to know that really something worse won't happen? Maybe the other shoe will drop. Maybe... Our children will not make it into the land of Israel. It's a terrible thing to think about. So, says Rashi, says Rashi, He told them that this is, that they would enter uh, the land. And the Ramban adds to this, Once he promised them he added these mitzvot, because these mitzvot are mitzvot that only, appear, only can apply in the land of Israel. There's no challah in the desert. You don't take challah from man, from the manna. There's no challah. It's only in the desert. But Ramban doesn't explain. But there are many other mitzvot that also only apply in the land of Israel. Why specifically these? You could have brought the laws of Orla. The laws of Orla also only apply in the land of Israel. The Ramban does not explain why these specific mitzvot. Meaning, there's a whole, you understand my question? There's a whole slew of mitzvot that only apply in the land of Israel. Of course, that's correct. There, God is saying to them, When you come to the land, you should know you're going to come into the land, you're going to be able to do mitzvot. But why specifically these mitzvot? Why not Orla? Why not Truma? Put that here. Put those laws here. Now, Sephorno, just uh, again, just, just want to mention a little parshanut. Sephorno here, in a very classical Sephorno fashion. Remember Sephorno, for those who've studied Sephorno. Sephorno was, um, Sephorno was from the school that sees that the ideal was not to have a Beit HaMikdash, and not to have a Mishkan, not to have a tabernacle, not to have a temple, and things were much more uncomplicated before the sin of the golden calf. As opposed to those who read the Mishkan as a lechatchila, as a uh, something positive from the very outset, Sephorno follows the approach that, no, it's all negative. It's a, it's a reflection of the people going down. It's a reflection of the fact that now they need more, you know, they need more help. They need more trappings to connect to God. It was better in the pre-Egel, more organic, when you didn't need Kohanim, and you didn't need ritual. That's Sforno's approach. So Sforno says the same thing here. Sforno suggests 
in his reading of this story, very different than most of the commentaries. He says, Up until the sin of the golden calf, you didn't need the additional menachot unesachim. You didn't need it. You just got away with just bringing the korban. But now, after the sin of the golden calf, and after the sin of the miraglim, now the Jews need more stuff. The Sforno here is consistent with his approach, which I find very difficult for many reasons, but the Sforno takes the approach. At least he begins to try to explain why specifically that first mitzvah is there. He tries to at least give an explanation. According to Rashi and the Ramban, there's no explanation why specifically it starts with Menachot and Nisachim. There has to be some reason, right? Okay. So, I'd like to suggest that we uh, go a little uh, deeper and think about uh, why it's here. Just parenthetically, the Barbanel says that, oh, the reason why it talks about the Korbanot and the Menachon and Sachim, it tells you that they're not just going to go into the land of Israel, but they're going to be rich. Because <laughs> they're going to have a lot of wine and you're going to have a lot of oil to be able to do these mitzvot. Okay, maybe, maybe not. You could have brought other mitzvot that involve, uh, that show that the Jews have uh, the wherewithal to, to do them. So, I think if we uh, if we go a, a little bit deeper, we can at least suggest why specifically uh, we start uh, with these mitzvot and then uh, move on uh, to other mitzvot. Okay, um, first of all, specifically. The first major point I just want to make is one of the things that's very clear at the end of chapter 14 is that the Bible says, Ein Hashem Bekir Bechem, God is not amongst you. That's a very powerful statement to make, that God is not in your midst. Remember in the sin of the golden calf also, Moses would take the ohel, v'natalo michutz lamachaneh, and anyone who would search for God would have to go out of the camp. Here too, God says, it's the opposite. Here, Umoshe, the Ohel, Moed, Lo Mashu, the Mish- they didn't move from the camp, and the camp, when they went to, to, to attack, God was not with them. It's a very powerful statement. God is not with you. Now, Orla is a nice mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that you only do in the land of Israel. But Orla doesn't reflect the notion that God is with you, that God is amongst you. Um, Truma and Meiser are very nice mitzvot that can only be done in the land of Israel, but they don't reflect that. Mincha and Nesachim, that reflects korbanot. Korbanot is, of course, the essence of, what's the word korban? Lahakriv, korban Lashem, l'reach nichoach Lashem. It's the beginning of coming close to God again. And it's very striking. 28 times in this chapter, the Shem Havaya, the name Yudke Vavke appears in this chapter, which is a kind of response to the notion of Ein Hashem Bekir Bechem. First of all, this, these, these notions of bringing the Korbanot, the Mincha and Sachim, and coming to the Beit HaMikdash on the Korbanot that you offer willingly is a sense of coming closer to Hashem. Ki Tavo Asher Vesitem Yisheh Ola Ladnai Ozevach Lefalei Neder Obin Dava 
is the beginning of the re- the repairing of the relationship that God is with you. But deeper than that, if you look carefully, the minchan and the of course, the meal offering and the libations, of course, are mitotzeret ta'aretz. They all come from the, the the fruit of the land. And it's very interesting. If we go back for a second, it's very interesting. Lechem v'yayin. When does that remind you of? Lechem v'yayin. Let's start at the beginning. Lechem and yayin. Malki tzedek. Remember that very first encounter. The very first time Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible. Umalki tzedek melech shalem. Hotzi lechem v'yayin. V'hu chohein le'el el the lechem and the yain in, in the ancient society, and there it's reflected, reflected, so to speak, the two major staples, wine and bread. And they were brought by the Kohen, they were brought there as a, as a, to Abraham. And Abraham gives a ma'aser, he gives a ma'aser, which is a kind of foreshadowing of the future. He gives a tithe to this Kohen, la'el el yon. In Jerusalem, the Mal, not in Jerusalem, but Malki Tzedek Melech Shalem, to the king of Jerusalem. And if we go a step further, we go a step further. In the Miraglim story, let's go back to the Miraglim story. What was the mission of the Miraglim? The mission of the Miraglim was to go survey the land and to see. Let's go back to chapter 13, verse 19. Go and see who's on this land. Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they in encampment or, or, or fortresses? What's this land? It was the time of grapes. Not the grapes of wrath. It was the time of grapes. It was the time of wine. And what do they bring back? They bring back, the Bible tells us, which is called Eshkol because of the Nachal Eshkol. They bring, they bring the Anavim. And that's Nachal Eshkol. So it's very striking. The Nisachim are a kind of, again, to use Hasidic terminology, it's a kind of Tikkun. The sin of the Miraglim was the rejection of the Bikurei Anavim, was the rejection of the, the fruit of the land, of the Anavim, of the Eshkolot, of the beauty, and the Tikkun, so to speak, that which, so to speak, is representative of coming back close to God, as I mentioned, is through the Mitzvah of the Nisachim. And why the Mincha? The Mincha always goes together with Nisachim. So you could say it just goes together, but there's something else. It's very interesting what did the people say? The people said that this is a land, Eretz, what did they say? Eretz Ochelet Yosheveha. It's a land that consumes its people. Instead of we benefiting from the land and consuming from the land, it's a land that consumes us. And it's so striking because what is the image that Joshua and Kalev use to try to encourage the people to not give up hope. 
Exactly. Verse 9. Chapter 14, verse 9. Don't, don't rebel against God. They are our bread. God is with us. But unfortunately the people don't listen. Instead of understanding that the land, the people are ours to consume, we see it as an Eretz Ochelet Yoshveh. It's a land that consumes us. We're the bread that's consumed by the people. The basic stuff of life, the staff of life in biblical period was bread. Instead of understanding that they're our bread, we become their bread. The tikkun, so to speak, is the nisachim and the menachot. It's specific to these things. And to go a step further, to go a step further, if you look in the book of, if you have your Tanakh, look in the book of Hosea. Hosea Perektet, Pasuk Gimel and Dalit. In the book of Hosea. Tet Yudalit, the first of the minor prophets. I think it's Tet Yudalit. That's what I wrote down in my notes, so hopefully it's right. Tet. So here, this is a pro, this is a prophecy of Tochachal Tismach Yisrael Gil Kamim, and it talks about in Pasuk Gimel Lo Yeshvu Be'eretz Hashem. The people, because of their sins, will not be allowed to remain in the land of God. V'shav Efraim Mitzrayim Bashor Tamei Ochelu. What will they not be able to do? Lo Yischu Ladonai Yain. So the representative of not being able to be in the land, interesting, is that you won't be able to enjoy the lechem and the yayin. Won't be able to enjoy the nisachim and the menachot. It's probably taken from here. But the point is, that the lechem and the yain represent the ability to be in the presence of the Lord in the land of Israel. Which is, of course, the tikkun, the, repre- the fixing of the sin of the miraglim. Parenthetically, also, of course, we go back to the shivat haminim, the seven species. I know, it's such a bad word. There must be a better word for that. The seven species, sounds like, you know, animals, but the seven species that the land of Israel is blessed with. What are the seven species that the land of Israel is blessed with? What are the first species? Eretz, chitau sora, which is basically bread. And what's the next one? Eretz, chitau sora, the gefen. The first two, the representative two, representing the species of the land of Israel are lechem, that's why also Chazal, it's not Stam, instituted a special bracha. One is called Hamotzi Lechem in Aretz, and one is called Borepriya Gefen, as opposed to the other foods which have their own separate brachot. And they, and each one is kind of the beginning of a meal, etc. So, and second, I'm sorry, they also had, they brought Rimonim and Teinim, interestingly enough. What's left? So we have, they, they bring back Rimonim and Teinim, Zait, and Shemen. So, so what, what did, I'm sorry, what, what didn't they bring? Zayit is Shemen, right? So Zayit and Dvaj, right? So it's very interesting. 
What is the man described as in the desert? Kitzapichit bidvash and keleshed hashemen. The Jewish people in the desert already had two of the meaning. But they get the other five. They get the other five. And yet they still, <laughs> they still want to stay out of the land of Israel. Pretty cool, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's what's going on. Okay. So we understand why this begins the list of mitzvot in the context of the narrative. We then go on, and it's understandable, and chala, of course, is a derivative of this. Because what is chala? Chala is a mitzvah of what you do with the bread. A mitzvah that continues the idea of what you do with this special bread, with the bread of the land of Israel. Chala only applies, <laughs> excuse me, in the land of Israel. And the Torah tells us, So it's very interesting. Now we actually have the word lechem explicitly. In the Menachot, it talks about solet blulab hashemen. It talks about the mincha solet. But here now we have the introduction of the word lechem, which makes it even stronger. Lechem ha'aretz. Connecting back to lachmenu heim, etc. Yes? Today we do it, we're machmir, but if you look at the Pshuto Shal Mikra, what does it say? It says, That's the Pshuto Shal Mikra. That's what it says. It's a machloket in Mishnayot, in Torah Shebaal Peh, whether Chala is Chal and Chutzlar. It's we're machmir. We don't do it in the same way in Eretz Yisrael. We burn it, we don't have Kohanim, etc. But the Pshuto Shal Mikra is that it's only, the simple reading of the text, it's only in Eretz Yisrael law, right? That's what it says. Only lechem ha'aretz, not lechem chutz la'aretz. Okay? Reshit arisotechem chalat tarimu kitrumat gorin. We now come to the next mitzvah, the third mitzvah. The third mitzvah, which is a very interesting mitzvah, very strange, at first blush what it's doing here. V'chitishgu v'lota suet kol mitzvot ha'eleh. Asher diber Adonai el Moshe. Very strange. What does it mean? How can you make a mistake and not do all the mitzvot? That's that's a lot of mitzvot. You're not doing six thirteen in one shot. So it's a very strange formulation. So many of the commentaries say this is just a way of saying It's as if it says achat mikol mitzvot. One of the six thirteen. That's one way to read it. Or the rabbinic reading was, when you do one of the mitzvot, which is keneged, all the mitzvot, like avodah zarah, that's the way the rabbis read this, that it's a reference to avodah zarah. Not getting into all, but you do it by accident. V'chitishgu. Et kol ha-shetziva Hashem etchem, biyad Moshe minayom, etc., etc. V'hayai meinei ha-eidah ne'estal ishkagav, asu kol ha-eidah parben bakar, etc., etc. Now, it's very, very interesting. I've mentioned before, what is this doing here? So I've explained why Aleph and Bet are here. But what's this doing here? What's Gimel and Dalit here doing here? What are they doing here? So I think the answer is obvious. What have, what have the Jews just experienced? They've just experienced sin. Sin. They did a terrible sin. The sin of the Miraglim, the sin of Ma'apilim, the sin of the Mitonim. It's a whole chapters and chapters of sin. And these sins almost brought them to the end. The sins almost brought them to destruction. It's only through the intervention of Moshe. Now the question is, what happens in the land of Israel when you don't have a Moshe anymore? What happens when things aren't so? And what happens when you make mistakes? 
And what happens when you do things on purpose? And so the Bible here presents. Interestingly enough, because it's very clear that it's contextual. What do I mean by contextual? In Sefer Vayikra, everybody turn for a second to Sefer Vayikra, chapter 4. Chapter 4 lists the chataot. Can somebody very quickly skim it and tell me how many different types of chataot are listed there? How many different types of chataot? Chapter 4. So we have all kinds of, we have all kinds of individual examples of chataot. There's a chatat when an individual does a sin. There's a chatat when the nasi, when the president does a sin. There's a chatat when the people do a sin. There's a chatat when the Kohen HaMashiach does a sin, right? There's a whole, li- because there is that is the main place where the laws of chatat, the laws of the sin offering are mentioned. So you have to list every single detail. Notice here, what is mentioned in our context in Bamidbar? What examples of chatat are mentioned? Which ones are mentioned? Shigigat ha'am. says the individual, the chitishgu velotasuet kol mitzvot which is unclear. Is it talking about individual or the people? And it specifically focuses etc., etc. It talks about the entire Eidah. It doesn't talk about the Kohen. It doesn't talk about the Nasi. Why? Why does it only, like a laser beam, it only talks about the sin of the people? Because what just have we experienced? The sin of the people. The Eidah is of course the key term in the story of the Miraglim. Ad matai la Eidah hara hazot. This is put here like a, because the focus is exclusively on what will you do. It takes out that one example, that one law that focuses on the sin of the Eidah. What happens if the Eidah, if the community make, commits a terrible sin by accident? Will, will, in the land of Israel, will we also die in the land of Israel? What's going to happen? Is there a mechanism? And it's very clear that the language here is echoing the Miraglim story. Because what does the Bible say here? Look at verse 25. You have to go through this procedure of bringing a sacrifice. We talk about the people receiving slicha v'chapara. This is taken directly from chapter 14. Turn back to chapter 14, where we talked about God is ready to destroy the people. Chapter 14, verse 26. Until when will this community continue to do this? And Moshe has to, Moshe intercedes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, before that. In chapter 14, when God is ready to destroy and Moses intercedes, and Moses says, verse 17, 
La'avona amaze ki godel chazdecha, verse 19, which of course we incorporate into our liturgy, slichot, in a few weeks, for those who are svaradim, they're going to start it. Slachna la'amaze ki godel chazdecha, v'chashen ha'salam z'am yitzayim, v'yom ha'adunai, salachti kidvarecha. So, we had a, ve- a vehicle of slicha, but not every generation has a Moshe Rabbeinu to intercede on behalf. How are we going to institutionalize slicha v'chapara for the Eida? So, bedafka, out of all the six or seven models of chatat, we talk about the chatat of the shgaga of the Eida. So, it makes perfect sense that it's here. Once we mention the Eida, we also mention the individual. We mention in verse 27, chapter 26, verse 27. I'm sorry, chapter uh, 15, excuse me. Verse 27, slicha. Okay. Um, in Vayikra, of course, there's no point. Vayikra doesn't mention the mazid. Vayikra doesn't mention the person who does things b'mezid because Vayikra is about the chatat. Chatat is only about the shogeg. But here, in the context of the Miraglim story, there was a lot of mezid also. Maybe there was some shogeg, the people who went along, the people who cried at night, but there was also mezid. And so the Bible doesn't just talk about the the edah that did things b'shogeg and doesn't just talk about the edah that... Th- about the individual that does things b'shoge. But look at the next one, verse 27. This is the korban that it brings. Verse 30. And the individual who does it blazonly, brazenly, and then we have an example of someone who does it the one who gathers the wood is an example of someone who in effect is doing something he's uh, an example of the Yad Ramah of someone who does it brazenly now here I want to add one more point which I once heard from my very dear friend Dr. Benny Gesundheit, who uh, lives in Israel. and uh, yeah. I'm sorry? He lives in Alon Shavut? Okay, great. Even better. So Rav Benny pointed out that there's something even, even more unique about, the, um, about this person who is the Mekoshei Sheitzim. Because the Mekoshei Sheitzim, of all the sins... That could have been chosen. Why the why you know obviously you'll say that's when it happened. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Meaning it's a very, very um it's a very, very generic phrase. Look at verse thirty two. Bamidbar, and the Jews were in the Midbar. Did this happen in the first year, the second year, the third year, the fortieth year, the third doesn't know. We read it as if it happened. All the, we're in the middle of mitzvot, and all of a sudden there's a narrative again. It could be that the fine, you know, when the, when the Torah was finally edited, it's put here as an example of Yad Ramah. But why this example? Why this was the only person who sinned? Maybe. But is there something specific about Mikoshei Shetzim? So Rav Benny, I thought, made a brilliant point. He points out 
that what was the Meraglim? The Meraglim was basically the spies wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to turn their back on the mission. They wanted things to basically give up on the mission and stay in Egypt. So Rav Benny said, if you open up your concordance, we find that the root, kashash, which is the root of mikoshesh, the gatherer, appears in the Torah only two places. One is here. Where's the other place? So let's go back. Nope. Yes. Go back to the beginning of Sefer Shemot. Let's go back to the beginning of the Exodus narrative. In the Exodus narrative, remember that Moses comes to Pharaoh and demands, let my people go and let them serve God in the desert. And Pharaoh is not interested. Chapter 5, verse 1. In Exodus, in Shemot, Vachar Ba'u Moshe Ve'Aron Ve'Emul Paro Komar Adunai Lo Hisol Shalachet Ami Ve'Achogul Ve'Amidbar Ve'Yom Paro Mi Adunai Asher Shema Bekolo Who is God? Lo Yadati Adunai Ve'Gamet Yisrael Lo Ashaleach Ve'Yomru Elohei Ha'Ivrim Nikrai Leinu Nelchana Derech Shaloshet Yamim Ba'Amidbar Let us go into the desert. Interesting. Let's go into the desert. The desert. The desert. And Pharaoh says, Ve'Yomer Alehem Melech Mitzrayim Lama you're getting in the work in the way of the work. There's a lot of these uh, ignoramuses. You want to give them a Shabbat. You want to stop them from working. You want to take them out of Egypt and stop them from working. What is Shabbat? Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. Right? Paro understands it. You want them to cease to work, the root vihishbatem, and you want them to leave Egypt. Vayitzav paro bayom awetanuksim bahamet shotavli more. Loto sifun late teven laam lil bon alvenim. You will not give them any more straw to make their bricks. Hemiel chul. They will go and gather their own straw. In the biblical paradigm, the the story of gathering straw, gathering straw is the statement of Pharaoh that I will not let you out of Egypt. You stay in Egypt and there's no Shabbat. There's no rest. You remain in Egypt. So the Mikosheshe seems symbolically... He could have done many things on Shabbos. He could have written, he could have done this. He could have, of all the 39 malachot, of all the 39 categories, bedafka, this Jew chooses to be mekoshesheitzim. The mekoshesheitzim has a, has a symbolism to it. The symbolism is, you in effect want to go back to Egypt, which is, that's, that's what we do in Egypt. In Egypt, when we're under the thumb of Pharaoh, we're mekoshesheitzim. We're no hishbatem. It fits perfectly like a glove. This is a continuation of the Miraglim. This is the individual Jew who says, Nitna Rosh, in a symbolic way. To be Mechalel Shabbat, to, 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 to uh, whatchamacallit, to, to, to desecrate the Sabbath in this fashion is a statement of, I want to go back to Egypt conceptually. 
I want to be nitna rosh nashumitzrayim, and therefore it's perfect as an example of a sin biyad rama, which of course is so sad also because it's the exact opposite of bnei Israel yotzim biyad rama when they left Egypt. They left Biyad Ramah. But here is someone, uh, an outstretched hand, uh, with, 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 um, with vigor and with uh, a sense of, 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 I don't know what the right translation is, but here he w- brazenly comes and does a sin, Biyad Ramah, which is symbolic of returning to Egypt. Ah. Yes. Who says this is... Oh, you're you're quoting from the Midrash that said... Yeah, but that's not in the text. That's not in the text. Sinned in the desert. But it never says what? It's actually a machloket in in rabbinic literature between Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Kiva who he was. I know you probably were brought up, but it's not explicit in the text what the sin of Tzlavchad was. They say... But that's one opinion. There's another opinion in the rabbis and, the, and it could be that he... Neither of those opinions is correct in terms of Peshat. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. They are in, he did it in the desert to say, I want to go back to Egypt. I don't want to go into Eretz Israel. Exactly. Exactly. So now we get to the last section. Tzitzit. Tzitzit, of course, is a, you know, powerful, uh, powerful mitzvah. And tzitzit, of course, uh, the purpose of tzitzit, the Bible here uh, says very, uh, very strongly, is that we should remember all the mitzvot. It's ledorotam; it's forever, and we put the tzitzit al knaf petil techelet, and we should see the tzitzit and remember all the mitzvot Hashem, which is very nice, because the danger is v'chitishgu. You're going to make a mistake and violate the mitzvot of Hashem. So the tzitzit are the counter to that, right? It says, mikol mitzvot Hashem. You'll forget the mitzvot Hashem. So the tzitzit are now a nice counter. It's, uzechatem et kol mitzvot Hashem vasitem otam. Not you won't do them, but you will do them. So it's very nice. And the tzitzit, of course, are to remind us, v'yitem kedoshim lelokechem, that you will, you will become holy. Parenthetically, the tzitzit, and again, I'm not getting into controversy now, but in the Bible, of course, the tzitzit are something that's worn by everybody, men and women. There's no distinction in the Bible. It's something that is worn by everybody. It's a rabbinic distinction. In the Bible, everybody wears tzitzit. And tzitzit is a playoff, as the Ibn Ezra notes, the tzitzit are basically a special beged, every Jew is like a Kohen. Every Jew is like a Kohen. Because what does the, what does the Kohen Gadol wear in the Kohen? He wears the tzitz. And on the tzitz, it has a patil techelet. It has a little blue string. And it says on it, Kodesh Hashem. It says, holy to God. What's the purpose of tzitzit? That you look at it, v'yitem, that you'll remember that you're... So the tzitzit are a kind of miniature beged, the Ibn Ezra notes, where a person is supposed to be like the Kohen Gadol. Now, 
I don't know if the Ibn Ezra said, if he doesn't say it, he should say it, but uh, it's, it's, it's definitely true. I think he says at least part of it. Okay, so, so, in fact, the Ibn Ezra says this uh, very cute thing, which is great to use in, in, in teaching, and in, he says, he sees that people come and they put on a talit in shul, he says it's better not to put on a talit in shul and wear a talit or tzitzis outside, meaning, you know, lots of people don't wear tzitzis. He says it's more important in shul. You don't need to be reminded of the mitzvot. That's not the. That's not where you need to be reminded of the mitzvot outside of shul, right? It's hard sometimes. Anybody who has teenage kids, you know, it's hard sometimes. Kids don't want to wear. Uh, boys don't want to wear tzitzis. Right? When I was a kid, they made a joke. They said that if girls would knit tzitzis, boys would wear them. <laughs> so, but uh, you know that sometimes uh, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Do people still knit kipot, or it's not so common uh, uh, for the boyfriends, girlfriends? Okay, so, so, so you have tzitzit here to be kadosh, and the tzitzit, of course, is of course uh, also the tchelet is a is the is the color of melucha chur karpasu tchelet, and we're supposed to be mamlechet kohanim the goy kadosh. Every Jew is supposed to be like a kohen. I mean, there's all. It's all what tzitzit is about, but on it. But in terms of the context of he, of the Miraglim, we of course have many hints, and many people have pointed this out already, have written about this. We have many hints to the Miraglim story. We close the circle. So, for example, the Miraglim. What was the perp, What was the mission of the Miraglim? They were supposed to go and latour et ta'aretz. They were supposed to go and tour the land, literally to survey the land. And what's the purpose of tzitzit? The tzitzit is supposed to make sure of a low taturu. We close the circle of where we began. The same language. We're not supposed to let our eyes go too far, which is what happened, unfortunately, there. They didn't look properly. They didn't look carefully. The people were supposed to see. They were supposed to go. They were supposed to see. Unfortunately, here, we have to make sure. You're supposed to look and see who's chartem et kol mitzvot Hashem. Unfortunately, the Bible tells us that God said that the people would have to carry their znut. In chapter 14, verse 35, 33. You will carry your znut. You will carry your znut. And here, it says, as I mentioned, unfortunately, the people did not live up to the mitzvot, and the Torah talks about mitzvot but the tzitzit is for the purpose of asitem et kol mitzvot Hashem The purpose is that you shall do all the mitzvot that God commanded you. And how does tzitzit end? Ani Hashem asher I don't want you to go back to Egypt. I'm the God who took you out of Egypt. That I'm the God who wants to be your God, who's taking you to the land of Israel for a mission of being mamlechet konim v'goy katosh. That's what you're supposed to fulfill. And so, when we look carefully at the structure of chapter 15, and we look carefully at the mitzvot that have been carefully chosen, and the narrative that's carefully chosen to appear between the sin of the Miraglim slash Ma'apilim and the sin of Korach, it makes perfect sense, or I think, 
we understand very richly why these are the mitzvot that were chosen above all other mitzvot that were chosen here in order to, again, the law and the narrative interact with each other in a mutually fructifying way. They interact with each other. They play off each other and we understand why the Bible is structured in this way. What I'm trying to, what I tried to do in this year was basically an expansion of what Chazal say, Dorshim Smuchot, that we, Doresh, we, we, what's the best term? We, we interpret and learn from the juxtaposition of Parshiot language theme one to the other, and it's not Stam that exists that way. Uh, I thank everybody for their Hakshava, and I wish everybody a great rest of the Yemei